Welcome to the Caring Greatly podcast, a podcast for leaders who seek to transform healthcare with humanity. Dr. Danielle Ofri is one of the foremost voices in the medical world today, shining an unflinching light on the realities of healthcare and speaking passionately about the doctor-patient relationship. She writes about medicine and the doctor-patient connection. Her writing appears in the New York Times, the New Yorker, and the Atlantic, as well as the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Ofri is a founder and editor-in-chief of Bellevue Literary Review, the first literary journal to arise from a medical setting, now an award-winning independent nonprofit literary arts organization. She's a primary care internist at Bellevue Hospital and a clinical professor of medicine at NYU. Dr. Ofri has given TED Talks on deconstructing perfection and fear, a necessary emotion and has also performed stories for the moth. She's featured in the documentaries Why Doctors Write and White Coat Rebels. In this episode, Dr. Ofri and I talk about an article she recently published in The New Yorker titled The Curious Side Effects of Medical Transparency. We delve into how the act of exposing medical notes to patients necessarily changes their purpose and their content, and how that, in turn, changes the thinking processes of clinicians. We talk about how art and expression are both integral to and separate from the art and science of medicine. Finally, Dr. Ofri offers advice to rising clinicians about how to separate their responsibilities from their identities to support sustainable practice. Dr. Danielle Ofri is a leader who cares greatly. Welcome, Dr. Ofri. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. It's good to see you. I reached out because you wrote an essay recently in The New Yorker titled The Curious Side Effects of Medical Transparency. And I love this article because it recognized so well the, the nuance and balance and pros and cons and, and real quandary around transparency, the goods, the bads. What prompted you to write the article? You know, we got our, our latest um, version of our electronic medical record initially the notes weren't available to the patients, but then at some point they became available. And of course, there was a, a, a regulation passed, the 20th Century Cures Act, which essentially allowed no information blocking, which meant everything from, you know, as we already had up until then, lab results and appointments, but now the doctor's notes themselves. And suddenly, once someone was reading my notes, I really had to think about what I was writing. Mm-hmm. Because the question really came to me is, who's the note for you know, I think in the past, we've always used the note as communication between the medical team. I write a note so the next doctor knows what's going on and what I'm thinking, what I'm doing. So I use shorthand, um, all kinds of abbreviations that my fellow doctors will know. But once the patients are reading it, you know, it changes things. And so I've had a few patients, for example, raise some questions about which diagnoses I pick. And sometimes it's because the diagnoses are, are funny. Like when someone's dizzy, the ICD code says dizziness and giddiness. <laughs> and I, I'm not kidding. So things like that. But it really made me start to think about what I'm writing um, and, and how that would be perceived. That's, yeah, that's interesting. And it's interesting. For a part of what I'm looking at this through the lens of is a caretaker for a family member where I've been in his medical record looking at notes, looking at lab results and trying to make sense of it. And um, I'm curious if, if you think anything is gained or lost when you're writing, knowing patients are going to be looking at that record? Well, well, both. Things are gained and things are lost. I think many things are gained. For starters, I mean, the patients 
own the medical record. That's that's my belief. It's their information, and they own it, and they should have the right to every single thing in there. Um, we also know that there's a lot of stigmatizing language that people use, and it's a good check for us to start thinking about how we're writing about people. And, and we often say offhand things. You know, we used to say um, the abbreviation when I was a resident for someone who, who used substances was IVDA, intravenous drug abuser. And of course, we've thought a lot about that term abuser and changed it to IVDU, IV drug user, for now just substance user, to try and sort of take away the stigma, the stigma against that. Or we say, you know, um, a diabetic does this as opposed to a person with diabetes. So there's lots of uh, progress we've made in language and knowing that people are reading what we write is a good check on that. On the flip side, we, I think any of us naturally, as soon as we our writing is being looked at, we get self-conscious and we change how we write and we probably lose something there. Um, some of it is medically relevant. Like for example, when evaluating someone with depression or psychiatric illness, their physical appearance has clinical utility. Right. So when someone's depressed and, and they're completely disheveled, they haven't showered, that is a sign of their illness. And because when they get better, you'll see that improvement. So documenting you know, how they look matters um, and, and so we'll often write, if someone's depressed, we'll write well-groomed. That's the term they use when someone's not disheveled versus disheveled, because again, that has utility. But from a patient's perspective, that's really mm -hmm. upsetting to see. Um, or, or halitosis, commenting, or, or alcohol on breath, things like that, that we would write as clues. We now leave it, we don't, no one puts it in at all, which I think there's um, there's something lost on that because we mm. lose that ability, to, especially in someone, you know, when someone, let's say, has schizophrenia and they've had a, a you know, a bad, um, you know, outbreak at that time and they're completely disorganized, disheveled, they haven't showered and, and their clothes aren't together. And then after treatment, you see a real improvement. That's a real sign of, of progress in the disease. But that part of the um, indication, that's forever gone. Yeah. No, and that, it makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's you you use the language of transparency and the language of mirror in the article where it's you know there's a little bit of a mirror turned on you when you're imagining that a patient's reading it but part of what's challenging as a patient is the mirror that's turned on i'm going to use the language us because i'm not a clinician um and and i can understand where a lot of defensiveness around that would come in and yet there is a lot of utility to it you know i will say there was in, in researching um one of my books, I think what patients say, what doctors hear, I was interested in, in language. And there was a, a study someone did about the use of the term obese versus overweight. Hmm. Um, and again, those are loaded words. And obese, of course, has clinical definitions, BMI over X amount, over 30. Um, and there's morbidly obese for a, a higher body mass index. But again, there's lots of issues around that. And, and so this study just, and this was a theoretical, kind of asking patients how they felt about these different terms, reading essentially, you know, um, anecdotes of, of notes. And surprisingly, patients who were not overweight um, found the word obese to be stigmatizing, would prefer just overweight. But the patients who were overweight actually appreciated the word, the use of the word obese because it made them realize, you know, this is a medical thing that my doctor's mm -hmm. concerned about, I should be concerned about. This was, it was just one little study, but it was a little bit counterintuitive to what we might think. But I, I've changed uh, it to overweight from obese in, in my note. Um, 
entirely, but I also realize that maybe am I doing a disservice? I, you know, I don't know. And for some, and it also depends on the patient. Some patients yeah. will find it uncomfortable to see. Some will find it refreshing, and they want their doctor to be honest, uh, you know, about that. So it's not so easy to know what's the right thing. Another thing I, I, and this is something I read about, but sometimes we'll write the patient appears younger than stated age um, or, or very pleasant patients. When people will write that. It's very common. And there are patients who took offense to that, that it felt very patronizing. Mm. Um, and I think doctors who wrote it think it is as complimentary. And so w- one doesn't know where the landmines will be. So I think there's that issue of what people are comfortable with and, and what the mirror is showing both to the patient and to the doctor but also, are we losing some clinical utility? For example, if we ignore the issue of being overweight and not address it at all, well, then we're doing our patients a disservice clinically because we know, you know, whether we consider it a social stigma or not, we know that certain diseases are much more common and that if we're not aggressively screening for diabetes and hypertension in patients who are overweight, we are not serving them well. Right. Well, and then there's the whole nuance of, I think the AMA guidance came out over the weekend or something saying BMI is not uh, necessarily an appropriate or, or nuanced tool for gauging overweight, but that's a whole other. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, and again, I think it matters, you know, what we say when I always try to say to patients, it's not the number that matters, it's how healthy you are. Right. But of course, the number is what appears in the chart. And right. and that's, you know, it's a quote, vital sign. But again, another discussion entirely. But I think what you're raising an awareness of is how how there is both clinical utility to appearance and also social judgment around it. Right. So that appears younger than stated age would seem to be as, you know, in a medical sense, very complimentary, but also as I can see where it could be condescending. It's a really, really interesting how people respond yeah. to language. Right. Because it's really interesting to just, I mean, two people who are 80 years old, one can be very fit and healthy appearing, one appears very frail and elderly, and they have different clinical issues. And, it, and then right. there is some utility in making that distinction. They're not just an 80 year old, they're right. We're trying to make a you know an assessment of of their fitness and health, but you're right. Maybe it's all plastic surgery, and we're you know <laughs> we're commenting on something. No, I wasn't. I wasn't implying that it was plastic surgery, but I I do. But think but it, yes, it, it, there's a there, yeah that that pers- perspective shift from physician to patient is is really interesting, and I do think the the openness, the transparency of the notes sort of forces you to look at that. I want to drill in just a little bit deeper um, because one of the things that that I've been researching and looking at is, um, you know, is things around uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and and health equity, and there are also challenges around things like acknowledging a patient as difficult or f- perhaps flagging a behavioral, um, you know, th- violence or or aggressive aggression or something that's that's also has utility for clinicians down the road to know, but also, but in terms of protecting themselves, but can also perpetrate stigma and maintain bias. I'm curious if you thought about that at all. As yeah, there was, there was actually therapy. a great study that looked at the, the language of medical charts in patients of different races and ethnicities and found, as might be expected, you know, a higher rate of stigmatizing language in communities that have historically been, been marginalized or, or underrepresented. Um, be it um, racially, body mass index-wise, age-wise, disability-wise. Um, and, and I think that that also correlates in studies of how the verbal interaction is, just mm-hmm. as an aside, that, that doctors dominate the conversation more when patients are from, um, you know, uh, stigmatized communities. And I think we do that in the medical record as well. So I do think that the openness of the chart 
is a way for us to really look a little more solidly. What do we do that's sort of habit forming? I mean, you know, when I trained, we were taught to write the race of the patient in the first lines, like a 66-year-old white female or 55-year-old black male, blah, blah, you know, presents with right. um But I remember when I actually got out into the wards as a medical student, I was like, well, how do you know, you know, when, yeah. when someone is, you know, um, black Caribbean or black South American, well, are they um, Lat Latino? Are they Hispanic? Are they black? Well, I don't know if they're mixed. And I like, it was such a head scratcher. And, and, and I remember the professor said, well, it matters because different diseases, but in practice, it was very hard. And am I just like sort of trying to pick out of the hat where, where they're from? If they're Middle Eastern, are they white or were they Asian? And it was so confusing. Um, and then, of course, you know, things have changed. Um, right. And um, yeah, so and I think to, to, for the betterment, I think that we, we put a lot of emphasis on just what the external appearance was, as opposed to it may matter where someone comes from geographically or genetically, because there are some diseases more common in certain genetic groups and that it would be facile to ignore that. Um, so it's changed how we write the notes. Uh, and I think being more careful descriptors, as opposed to just trying to put a category. So a patient was born here, came here, or, you know, this is how the patient is speaking or how they're behaving now. Of course, some patients get angry. Are they a, quote, difficult patient? Um, or they just have a bad day? Or they're genuinely upset about a legitimate thing that, that's worthy of being upset about? Um, you know, I have a patient who um, has some psychiatric issues, and intermittently I've seen in notes that he can get very verbally aggressive and sometimes verbally abusive per the terms. And I, and I see what they're responding to, and I know that it's there, but I also can sense that when someone reads the chart, they say, oh, this is a troublemaker. And they're already like, have their hackles up. And I'm sure that patient doesn't get the same, I think, fairness and generosity of hearing as he might have if that stuff wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, there's no easy answer to this. And I want to shift gears a little bit because we're talking a lot about language and, and a lot of that is because in addition to being an attending physician at Bellevue Hospital and professor of medicine at NYU School of Medicine, you're an author and an editor-in-chief of the Bellevue Literary Review. So how does writing and creativity help you as a physician and as a human? Well, I, I, first of all, I do try to keep the things separate that, you know, when I'm being a doctor, that is what I'm doing. And I'm not looking at my patients as, you know, material for writing or inspiration or ideas and, you know, and vice versa. On the other hand, I do, you know, as an editor and a writer, I think a lot about the words we choose. And, you know, no sentence is accidental when you're writing a novel or a short story or a good essay. We, we labor long and hard. Um, it's funny, I remember when my first book came out, someone wrote a really negative review and pointed out like three or four typos and <laughs> how poorly edited. And I'm thinking, that book was 120,000 words. If only four were misspelled pretty good. You don't even <laughs> notice when it's perfect because, it, but so much labor went into making those 120,000 minus four words spelled correctly. <laughs> but we, so we do labor over every single word and sentence and, and, and phrase um, because it, it should convey meaning. It should not be trite. It should have rhythm and musicality as well. It should have imagery and all, all these things that we, we think about. Now, of course, when I'm running for the medical record, um, I think about it a bit um, uh, because I do, I, I can't, I can't turn off the editorial reflex. Like I think, oh, someone's reading this. I have to make sure I, I don't 
like when I see when I do a typo, I go back and fix them because it's so upsetting. Even like I'll see an old record and that I wrote, you know, two set visits ago, and I see a typo. I'm like, damn it, I'm going to fix that typo. I know we're <laughs> not to ever change it, but I don't want a misspell the word in the record. It just it shows editorial sloppiness. <laughs> well, and I I'm imagining also that you know when you write an essay like this one on transparency, it allows you to process and reflect on things that are otherwise just bouncing around in your brain as you're thinking about, you know, should I write out this full differential diagnosis or not? What are the pros and cons? It gives you a a way to kind of grapple with the ambiguity that's inherent in medicine. Right. Oh, and we're not really allowed to express that ambiguity so much in the record. So as you mentioned, the differential diagnosis is a real conundrum. You know, when we patient comes in and says, you know, I feel tired, right? There's a huge differential diagnosis of possibilities of what they could have for fatigue. And some are benign, like I didn't get enough sleep or I have a new baby or I'm stressed and some could be deadly. People can be tired when they have cancer or, you know, um, severe diseases, hypothyroidism, I mean, many, many diseases. And so we're taught to write out or at least think out the huge list in our heads because you don't want to miss anything. And we were taught to write those down on the chart. But gosh darn it, I'm not writing cancer in the chart at this point because <laughs> anyone who reads it, I'm like, oh my God, doctor thinks I have cancer. I mean, as it is, my patients are so cancer, you know, trigger happy. They see any blood test abnormality, they'll Google it. And of course, cancer is always in the differential for right. whatever lab abnormality. And, and I get notes from my patients all the time being worried about having cancer because the chloride level, which is essentially meaningless, was off by 0.1, it gets flagged as abnormal. Um, and, you know, particularly my patients who are very health vigilant, um, some of whom would qualify as hypochondriacs and some are just, you know, overly cautious. Some are very, you know, Google trigger happy, which can be great and empowering and also going to be terrifying when you look something up at three o'clock in the morning and it shows this enormous list of horrific deadly diseases um, and then you have no one to process that with until your doctor writes back three business days later. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. No. And I'm I'm just picturing all of my Googling experiences with my loved one's medical care um, and then how over time it it eased. It became much easier because I I was looking more at the trends. Right. And they, even if there was an, an abnormal read, it was the same abnormal read it had been all along and it was fine. And um, hopefully, I think as as transparency becomes the norm and as more people get used to this idea of accessing it, that knee-jerk fear reaction will will ease some, although I imagine but, for some it won't. Right, but I think we also need to do this with a certain amount of education. We can't just, mm -hmm. you know, open the fire hose and just let it all out. About, okay, patients, now you're responsible, right, <laughs> um, for everything. It's kind of like when we talked about shared decision-making. It was often interpreted as, well, you make the decision, you know, um, right. But that's not giving, that's abandoning a patient. Here, you take it all and figure it out. I mean, our job is to help guide our patients with the minefield of information, of decisions to make. But of course, we're not sort of granted any time or space to do that. And, and it's a real thing. You know, it yeah. takes time to do that. There's a lot of subtlety. Um, there's context for things. And, and context, of course, is completely lost. when We just throw lab results out there. Um, I mean, even simple things like, take an HIV test. You'd say, think, oh, that's just a yes or no. But right. every test has false positives and false negatives, and it depends on the context. So if you have a negative HIV test in, let's say, a patient who is an IV drug user, um, 
And so the pretest probability is very high. That might be a false negative. And you might right. not believe you might retest. If you got a positive HIV test in a nun who was celibate, <laughs> the chance of them having the pretest probability is very low. You say, that is probably a false positive. You know, I'll need to recheck that. So the context matters. But you don't just say, oh, it's a tr I mean, it's not necessarily true just because it says it's there. Right. Everything, you know, has context. And, and every test has operating characteristics, none of which are 100%. And I think yeah. we forget that. If it appears in a computer, we, we assume, oh, that is, you know, that's coming down from, from the mount, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> But it's not. There, there are, are you know, um, sensitivity specificities of the test. There's limits of the testing equipment. Um, values change. We've changed the range of troponins, for example, for, for heart attacks several times. And if you're not aware of the latest ranges, mm -hmm. you'll be thrown off. Um, so there's much, you know, and, and there are mistakes. You know, computers make mistakes, too. And right. we, we forget that, but they do. <laughs> so And so do we humans. Yes, Yes. Well, and I think I think one of the things I appreciated about your article was that that that, that nuance was there. That that you're not trying to land in some place. You're trying to say this is an ambiguity we need to live with thoughtfully. Um, right. Right. But that article took four thousand words to explain and almost two years to write. And <laughs> we're supposed to like do this in a fifteen minute session with a patient. It's just not possible. <laughs> yes. No. That I that I one hundred percent agree. And hopefully, articles like yours will help patients like me mm. be out there in a with a, a more nuanced understanding of of what our engagement might be as patient and, and clinician. So, just to wrap up, you know, I know you've looked at this, you've looked at language, you've looked, you know, you've written a number of books. What's your advice to fellow clinicians? who are grappling with some of the changes and challenges in healthcare, whether that's technology and process changes, uh, as in your article, or, or other major shifts? That's a very big question. <laughs> so, so one is, is to obviously take a step back and think um, and, not, and not to feel obliged to, to jump on every bandwagon as it comes, but also to separate what's our ambit and what is the systems? And I think often in medicine, we take everything quite personally for good and for bad. I think we're trained that you are 100% responsible, which I think makes for good clinicians, but it also makes for people who take on more than, than what they're responsible for. So a lot of what the issues are, are systemic issues of, of the way medicine is now, you know, very corporatized and, and to some degree takes advantage of the professionalism of, you know, nurses and doctors and most healthcare professionals. And so, so yeah, so we'll stay later or more hours because the system is failing. So for example, the system dumps information on patients without much explanation. And those patients now are floundering with questions and fears. So we spend extra hours on weekends and nights unpaid and from our family to, because we don't want to let our patients, you know, um, suffer that. But that's really a systems issue. You know, if the yeah. system wants to throw it out, then it needs to provide resources like, for example, a dedicated nurse, you know, educator to be available for that. So, to to so to be careful uh, on thinking about what is my part and what is the system's part. Not that we abdicate responsibility, and I think it's our job to lobby for systemic changes that we have a voice. And I think we've forgotten how powerful that voice can be. You know, when I think back to the pandemic, that 7 p.m. cheer, um, which was just the most amazing thing, both mm. to be a recipient of and also to be participating in that when it was my day off. 
um, that I think for the first time the public realized what healthcare workers do, and for healthcare workers to realize what we do, and that this pandemic, we would not have gotten through it if, you know, healthcare workers didn't step up as they largely did. And the, but that's the same for everything we're facing um, in, in healthcare. And so we do have this voice. And and the corporatization of, of healthcare, you know, that can't work without the healthcare workers do, doing the work. The C-suite can't do it themselves. Um, and so we, we do have this power um, and harnessing it is, is tricky. We're all overwhelmed and busy and, and very atomized. But we do have this immense power that, that we can really take advantage of. And I love that you often take advantage of it through art, uh, through a medium that speaks to people and, and reveals truth in a way that is um, really hard to ignore. You know, I, I know the New Yorker article was more of an essay, but I, you're involved in so many art pursuits. I think that's a it's a beautiful reminder that that voice can be expressed in in different ways. And other people's voices, too. I mean, one thing I love about Bellevue Literary Review is that we publish fiction, poetry, nonfiction from writers of all walks of life. Um, some are healthcare workers, most are not. Often people have been patients or have taken care of people. In fact, our upcoming issue is on the topic of taking care, where we're interested in, in the experience of, of caregiving or, or being cared for and what, what that means. And sometimes fiction, you know, as it's often called, the great lie that tells the truth, or poetry are ways that convey the experience of caregiving in a much more potent way than, oh, here are the top 10 ways to be a good caregiver or to, you know, to avoid the stress of caregiving. Those are great. They kind of go over your head and they don't capture, you know, what it feels like inside that vulnerability, which is, I think, has a lot in common with creativity. And I think it's no accident that many people over centuries have have expressed their art from this moment uh, of illness or, or, Mm -hmm. or caring or vulnerability, because it does really bring down the guardrails and, and, you know, and bring certain truths out or certainly certain experiences. So I encourage people to, to access art for that. Um, you know, Bellevue Literary Review is one way, and there are many ways. There are lots of fine art that people do. And we just did a program with dance and poetry together um, about the experience of recovery. And mm-hmm. you can really put these different art forms together to bring out how we face loss and grief and recovery in ways that, you know, a newspaper article doesn't quite get to. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you for bringing that into the world. And thank you for sharing your perspective today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of the Karen Greatly podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or Spotify. For links related to Dr. Ofri's episode, please visit vocera.com podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of Vocera, now part of Stryker. This is Liz Bohm, executive strategist at Stryker and host of the Caring Greatly podcast. Thank you for caring greatly. Thank you.